Today's intended purpose was to announce something regarding a debate challenge, and this is not something new to me, as tomorrow I have a debate with atheists at Manchester University, and I have been preparing for that. Some people have been um, asking questions whether I have accepted a particular debate challenge in, with regard to a particular topic, and inshallah, Allah willing, toward the end of this speech, I will mention what has transpired with regard to that particular challenge. But today, this speech or short lecture is targeting a specific audience. Those people who label themselves specifically with terms like Diobandi or Barelui, this lecture is targeting those people. Anyone who is satisfied with just being known as a Sunni Muslim does not have to listen to this lecture unless they have a particular academic interest in the historical background to this labeling of Diobandi and Brailui. But specifically speaking to those who will label themselves as being Diobandi and Barelui. And I believe this challenge has not come at a better time. Meaning, as a community, Muslim community in the UK, we are facing the challenges of globalism, challenges of secularism, a rise of atheism, hence my debate tomorrow and many other engagements with atheists. In the midst of such a, an environment, a milieu, it's imperative that we as Muslims know how to engage with one another. And I believe myself to be in a pivotal position today to dialogue, debate and discuss with any sect within the UK. The individual mentioned that for decades I, I have been engaging in this. Of course, my age would not exceed three decades, but I think he would have meant to say that for a decade at least I have been engaging with multiple groups. And how do we unite the, the Ummah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa without forfeiting the precepts, the tenets of faith, of creed, without giving up those tenets of creed? What is the practical steps that we as Muslims can make? This is something that we need to analyze with a cool mind. So today I am specifically targeting those people who would label themselves as Diobandi or Barelui, and when they, that particular person said, he labels himself as Ahlul Sunnati Wal Jama'a Diobandi, meaning with the appellation Diobandi at the end. So, this particular mindset and people with this particular mindset are being addressed today. There are those people who cannot grasp certain 
concepts relating to the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That when discussing with them, they would be unable to understand some of the divine attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In fact, majority of the people, if we discussed the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with them, they will be unable to mention what those attributes are, what is essential for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what is impossible for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what is permitted in the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There are people who will not understand basics of ablution, of salah, being perceptive of this reality. I would say that today's lecture is not targeting those people also. At one point, I was live on Ummah channel on television, and a person asked me that in their locality, they have masajid belonging to different groups with different labels. Are they permitted to pray in those masajid? This was the question being asked on live television. I answered that person by saying, you will be asked according to your level of knowledge. The person was not satisfied with this answer. Why? Because it did not play into his hands, meaning in fueling a sectarian divide. The answer is correct. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not burden a soul except according to its capacity. So the capacity of a person intellectually and spiritually, according to that capacity, the person is tasked to recognize what is considered heterodox, what is considered heresy. So today's lecture is also targeting people who are able to grasp basic concepts. If people are unable to, to grasp basic concepts, they should not be discussing these disputes. The same can be realized when I debated people belonging to what is known as the Ahlul Hadith or the Salafi movement. When debating them, there are people amongst them and those who would claim to follow me that who are unable to grasp basic concepts and will be discussing things which will be a danger to their faith. So those people who believe that they do not label themselves as Barilvi or Diobandi or do not have any academic interest in this subject and cannot be, or those people who are not objective when discussing these type of subjects or those people who cannot grasp basic concepts of Islam should not be listening to this lecture. Additional to this, the general public, the general Muslim public, the ruling relating to the general Muslim public, and this also relates to the issue of takfir, declaring other people as disbelievers, the general Muslim public is Muslim, and they will not be asked regarding so many of these issues. So this does away with the majority of people, that the majority of people would only have to know the basic aspects of their faith. They will not be asked regarding which sect they belong to if they are unable to grasp the basic precepts of those sects. No. If they know the, those things which are known in religion by necessity, they will not be asked regarding so many disputes that people may discuss today 
because so many of them are unable to grasp those issues. A practical example of this on the ground is the issue of talaq, divorce. Majority of people are married or get married, but so many of them will still not even know the basic rulings of talaq. If Muslims who are unable to grasp something which is which can occur in everyday life, in their material life, they cannot even grasp the concepts relating to the fiqh rulings, the jurisprudence rulings relating to divorce, it would be more difficult for such people to grasp abstract things or those things which they would need to think about. So the majority of the public, of the, the Muslim public, do not need to worry about so many things that they end up disputing. Now even though this current dispute was brought up on the first of the month of Rabi'ul Awwal. Meaning, the month of Rabi'ul Awwal enters, the month in which the Messenger of Allah was born, and the dispute arose. That, according to this person, for many decades I have been discussing certain individuals belonging to his school of thought, but after many decades, according to him, he is able to muster the courage and bring up the subject now. But in reality, the subject was brought up because of my mentioning certain political association of the Darul Ulum Dioband in India with Hindu fundamentalists in India. This was what I mentioned recently. And this may have stoked the fire for this individual to come out and mention his challenge. So this challenge was made in the month of Rabi'ul Awwal. But one thing which I will not do during this discussion or during any debate is entertain the crowd. And entertaining a crowd would entail name-calling, so I will not fall into the mistake of name-calling, so people who want to hear this lecture or any other lecture for entertainment reasons and purely for entertainment that will not be done by me meaning there are enough clowns out there for people today on Facebook to watch and they can watch those clowns for entertainment but on my part there will be no clowning around there will be no uh, no servitude to the audience Meaning, what the audience would expect from me is not what my task would entail. As a servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I would have to answer Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, there will be no entertainment for people in this discussion or any forthcoming debate. So, any people who involve themselves due to entertainment should also switch off. Additional to that, there will be many people who will be name-calling one group against the other. And this happened, unfortunately, with the debate with uh, Ustad Abdul Rahman Hassan. In that debate, there were people who made racial slurs regarding him. This is totally objectionable. Totally objectionable. Meaning, making racial slurs or making any type of slander or ins insults to the opponent. And this also happened with the Shia. When debating the Shia, 
there were racial slurs as well as other types of insults of course they insulted the companions of the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wa wasallam but in our discussions we will remain and meaning i would remain and i would expect everyone from our side to remain objective and with the calm mind in discussing any of these subjects if we do not maintain a calm demeanor and a calm mind during our discussions we will not be able to grasp the basic aspects of these type of disputes why is it important that we understand these disputes it is important to understand those disputes in order that we may remove and alleviate this ailment from the nation of the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wa alihi wasallam so personal name calling insults will not be done by myself and anyone on the internet I mean people become very brave when typing on a keyboard they become very brave so they will write names they will name call and they will insult one another using foul language this will not be done by myself and anyone who does this we condemn this in the strongest of terms meaning a condemnation of any name calling in the strongest of terms ad hominem meaning mentioning things which are irrelevant to the discussion that will also be sidelined anything irrelevant to the discussion will not be mentioned after having watched some of these debates i have noticed that one objection that is made against me is that i do not raise my voice in the debates there was only one instance where i may have raised my voice and that was from a graduate of binori meaning in the course of discussion with a graduate from binori i raised my voice because he was he kept interrupting my speech so it led to raising the voice but when if someone listens to the audios that are online they will notice that those people all they do is shout and they raise their voices but if you look at my track record of debates which are online recorded debates you will notice i do not raise my voices my voice to the opponent opponent not once have i raised my voice to the opponent with the exception of that one discussion not a debate with that one individual from birmingham who is a graduate of binori but aside from that when debating uh, ustad abdul rahman hasan as well as a host of other people you will including non muslims atheists you will notice that there is no raising of the voice so raising of the voice in any debate or discussion will be thrown out of the discussion and i will turn a deaf ear to anyone raising their voice additional to that interrupting the opponent any interruption of the opponent any valid point he may be making or invalid point if i disagree with the point i would want the opponent to finish making his point and then stopping in that discussion with the mufti who was a graduate of binori in birmingham when we kept interrupting one another i suggested at that time why do we not time one another give each other some time to speak and the only reason why the interruptions were done was because when i would speak he would interrupt me and additional to that he would not answer my questions which is a form of 
causing disruption in the debate when you do not answer the questions of the opponent. I said to him, any question you ask me, I will answer honestly. He refused to answer my questions and at the same time interrupting me. So this led to raising of the voice. When I offered him to speak five minutes at a time as I have been doing with all the people I've debated, like tomorrow there will be a debate with an atheist, the discussion will be timed. He refused to accept that offer. So any future debate, raising the voice does not mean that you have won against your opponent. There are so many people in the public today that they believe if you raise your voice higher than the other person and you shout down at, at him, you have won the debate. Muslims unfortunately become so emotional when it comes to debating and you are hearing this from myself, a person who is a debater. That Muslim, the Muslim audience becomes so emotional that they believe that they must shout and raise their voice and insult the opponent. I do not believe this is debating. Maybe this is, I think, particular to the Indian subcontinent or people who come from the Indian subcontinent, but it is not the way of the people of knowledge, Ahlul Ilm. So raising the voice and interrupting is not something that would happen in any debate that I will wish to ensue. Ironically enough, that Mufti, who is a graduate from Binuri, has not been offered out to a debate. There has not been a call out to that Mufti. That Mufti has denied the virgin birth of Sayyidatuna Maryam alayhi salam. He has denied the descent of Isa alayhi salam. That Mufti permits the use of cannabis. That Mufti permits illicit acts which a person would have modesty not to mention in a public uh, arena. Additional to that, that Mufti believes agnosticism is permitted for a Muslim. Meaning a Muslim can have doubt regarding the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That Mufti believes hellfire and paradise are figurative. That Mufti adopts a reformist agenda. He rejects hudud, corporal punishments. He rejects the reinstatement of the khilafah. He rejects so many things which are agreed upon by Muslims or the Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah, meaning those things which are known in religion by necessity or those things which are known as an, as an agreement amongst the Sunni Muslims. Yet, these people, these graduates, have not given a call out to that Mufti I have been the only person who has called that person out. These people have said in their video that they have other challenges, greater challenges, but they have been unable to deal with Frankenstein's monster. Meaning Dr. Frankenstein made a monster. This monster is a produce of that Darul Uloom. That produce of that Darul Uloom has not been tamed by the people who, who made that monster. He has been tamed by people from Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah, the people of the Sunnah. So I would say to them, you have given me your call out and you know that I accepted your call out before any public announcement. You know this. But yet you have failed in dealing with the real innovators in your midst, from your madaris, people who are people who have graduated from your madaris, 
who have done dor, what you call dorai hadith, meaning finishing the works of hadith, and who have finished the iftar course. They have finished the iftar course at your madaris. If we have any graduates like this from our madaris, we will refute them. We will not be partisan to that individual. And this moves me on to the main points which I want to make today. Those points, the first one being, is that the individual mentioned the term fraternity. Now it would be especially important for this individual to go back to a dictionary and check the meaning of fraternity. Because when this term was used to me, I said I do not believe in fraternities. I do not believe myself to be in any fraternity. It is interesting that he has used the term fraternity, but for the audience today I would like to say, these labels, Diobandi and Barelvi, what were the Indian subcontinent Muslims termed prior to the year 1866? Because Darul Ulum Dioband was formed in 1866 and Al Imam Ahmad Khan was still a child. So the Muslims in India were not known as Barelvis and they were not known as Diobandi. What were they known as? They were known as Sunni Muslims. There was more of a Sunni unity amongst the Indian Muslims. With the exception of the publication of the work Taqwiyatul Iman, which was published in the year 1821. And Ismail al was from a prominent Sunni family, meaning even his family, the likes of a Sheikh Abdul Aziz al the likes of Shah Waliullah Dehlwi, known as Ahmed, uh, Ahmed bin Abdul Rahim. These were Sunni scholars. They were known as Sunni Muslims. He was against the methodology of his forefathers and he wrote a work known as Taqwiyatul Iman in 1821. This was the work that caused disunity and sectarianism in the Indian subcontinent. That disunity and sectarianism has continued to this day today. Of course, the book was published by the Royal Asiatic Society. So the British published the work, they disseminated the work in Urdu and English in the Indian subcontinent. They, in fact, they published the work, and these are the facts that they dislike me mentioning. These are the points. These are facts. Today, I would like to say people are not living in villages. These Muslims in the UK are not living in villages where we are able, or anyone is able to misinform them. Go and check these facts for yourself. Most of these books are available as PDFs on the internet. And also you are able to check so many facts. Like in the, old, in the 1980s they would mention Francis Robinson and his book uh, regarding Muslim Indian movements, political movements in the Indian subcontinent. He sources and references Al-Imam Ahmad Ridha Khan, ta'ala. It's a PhD written by Francis Robinson. Today, people are not talking in Urdu to an audience who cannot even access that PhD. The PhD is available for everyone to buy. You can purchase the book or you can access the book on the internet. So this book, Taqwiyatul Iman, was published in 1821 and was also republished by the Royal Asiatic Society. The point I would want to make is how did Muslims identify themselves prior to the 
inception of Darul Ulum Dioband prior to Aligarh University, prior to Al-Imam Ahmad Ridha Khan Rahimullah Ta'ala. They would have identified themselves as Sunni Muslims. Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah. So what is the meaning of someone saying, I proudly ascribe myself to Dioband and I proudly call myself Ahl Sunnah Dioband. This is, this, this is the very nature of divisiveness. This is why I would say regarding myself that we only recognize ourselves as Sunni Muslims, being from Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah. How would you know the distinction between a sectarian individual and a person, I mean, a person who incites sectarianism and a person who would want to work for the unity of the, the nation of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is the person who is unable to discard these new labels. So the first question is regarding uh, the identity before 1866 and before 1821. You would know that the Sunni Muslims of India and Pakistan, what is Pakistan today and Bangladesh of the entire region, would label themselves as Maturidi and Hanafi, majority of them. Otherwise, Ash'ari. What is the meaning of Ash'ari? Ash'ari does not denote that the person would have to be a Shafi'i in, in subsidiary, in, in furu'. No. Ash'ari is inclusive of both. This is called taghlib in balagha, in rhetoric. For instance, you refer to Abu Bakr al-Siddiq and Umar al-Farooq as Umarain, the two Umars. You refer to the sun and the moon as Qamarain, the two moons. You refer to water and dates as Aswadain, the two dark ones. Likewise, you refer to the Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah as Asha'ira. This is known as Taghlib. And this term is used by scholars. The Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah in the Indian subcontinent was united under the Hanafi school as well as the, the teachings of Abu Mansur al-Maturidi rahimallahu ta'ala and Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari. But which text forms a text of unity in creed, that text is the Mukhtasar of Al-Imam Abu Ja'far al-Tahawi rahimallahu ta'ala. This text is a text which Al-Imam Tajuddin al-Subki rahimallahu ta'ala states, this text is a text which both the Asha'ira and the Maturidis are agreed upon. It contains the beliefs of both groups. In fact, the text would be inclusive of the beliefs of the Athari Hanabila. So this text is a, is a text upon which the nation of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu can be united upon. So Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah is the followers of the four schools, Hanafi, Shafi'i, Maliki and Hanbali. They agree upon a text like the Aqeedah of Imam Abu Ja'far al-Tahawi rahimallahu ta'ala. This is Sunni identity. Any labels which people, appellations, labels, that people may apply later, those labels need a clear context. If those labels are divisive, then there is a reason why they are divisive. So this is food for thought for anyone who claims that they are proudly saying, we are Ahl Sunnah Diobandi. Proudly saying Ahl Sunnah uh, Diobandi in order to say that this is distinct from other Sunni Muslims. So how do we move on from 
this state of affairs, how we move on firstly, is doing away with blind conformity. Do we as Sunni Muslims blindly follow our ulama in creed? What is the answer? You as the audience, you can answer. Do we blindly follow our ulama in creed? The answer is no. So, blind conformity in creed is impermissible. This is the first essential aspect which people must understand. We cannot have blind conformity in creed. We follow the legal rulings of Imam Abu Hanifa, subsidiary rulings of the, the four schools in fiqh, in jurisprudence. But when it comes to creed, we do not label ourselves as the Obandi or Barelwi simply because our father was a Diobandi and our, uh, or our father was a Barelwi, so we term ourselves as being Diobandi or Barelwi. No. A person must understand his creed. A person does not follow the creed only because he's Mawlana or his teacher from, which he, the, from the Darul Ulum that he graduated from ascribed to that creed. No. Because recently after I mentioned the historical fact regarding Mahmud al-Hassan Diobandi and his association with Gandhi's right-wing movement and I mentioned and what did I mention? The vindication of Imam Ahmed al-Dakhan regarding which issue where people said this was a political issue. They said he was pro-British and anti-Khilafa, meaning against the Uthmaniyun, when in fact he was anti-British and was a supporter of the Uthmaniyun. But when I mentioned this fact, this brought out this individual in order to refute me and offer me to debate. I'm glad he has offered me to debate, but the first thing I would request from him is leave blind conformity to what you term as your elders. This is the term they use. They use this term akabir. And when they use the term akabir, they mean akabir, meaning elders of a particular group. So they may have akabir of Diyoband, akabir of Bareli. So they limit themselves to those akabir. When Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah in reality is a global family, a huge family. So with this point regarding blind conformity, the very first step is to move, move away from blind conformity in creed. Additional to that is that no one personality, no one personality, any personality, is above ijma' consensus. So if any scholar makes a mistake, irrelevant to whether you call him Akabir of Bareli or Akabir of Dioband, that scholar must be judged in accordance with Ijma', the consensus of the Ummah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the agreement of the Mujtahid Imams, the agreement, the consensus that they have. So this uh, attitude that if we have a personality and he makes a mistake, we will not acknowledge that mistake in, in the case of this individual, he's making it out, he has some esoteric knowledge, knowledge that he has hidden away, that he will bring out in the debate that you, this scholar made this mistake, and this scholar made this mistake, and this scholar made this mistake. And he will surprise me, and then I will be unable to answer his points, as if I am a blind conformist of those scholars. In reality, we follow the ijma'. If the Sunni Ulama have an ijma' and a given point, we follow the ijma'. 
if any individual scholar or individual scholars go against the ijma' of Ahl-Sunnati wal-Jama'ah, we openly condemn that individual, irrelevant to whether he is what you call a kabir of Bareli or a kabir of Dioband. This removes that doubt which this individual seems to have that he may present like tahqiqat of Ashraf Siyalvi or the works of Pir Karam Shah or the works of Mufti Ahmadi Arkhan Naimi or the works of Naimuddin Muradabadi meaning as if there is a fear on my part if they have made a mistake and we will point out that mistake we will, uh, they will point out that mistake we will not acknowledge that this is a mistake he seems to think that I am partisan to a group when he should realize that the only thing that is binding an individual is ijma' consensus. So if a person does not bind himself to ijma' but binds himself to partisanship, then he will fall into that trap. What we bind ourselves to is the ijma' of Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah. So no personality can circumvent ijma'. This brings us to understanding that these personalities, none of them are ma'asum. None of those people are what? Ma'asum. Only the Anbiya alayhimu salatu wassalam are ma'asum free from sin. The prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are free from sin. Individual scholars can mis make mistakes. But is ijma' ma'asum, consensus ma'asum? The answer is yes. Because, and this is what we grasp onto, that the consensus of the ulama is ma'asum. That if there is a point in, on which there is consensus, and someone opposes that consensus, then that person is misguided with regard to that point. This moves me to an additional point, which is regarding principles over personalities. Usul over personalities. And I pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, people listen to this, that principles, usul, are over individuals. So you cannot say because this individual, whom some may perceive as being ma'asum, flawless, and this is why this person's methodology is flawed. Because even if they do not vocally say that they are ma'asum, in practice, in practicalities, they are emanating this uh, belief or this inner belief that those individuals are ma'asum free from sin. But principles are looked at prior to individuals. What are those uh, principles? One thing that would have to be observed is if this scholar made a mistake, was a fatwa issued upon the scholar in his lifetime? Did the other scholars pick up on this mistake? And if so, what did they say regarding that mistake? Additional to that, if the mistake was picked up upon after his lifetime, then we condemn the mistake, but issuing a verdict on the individual is not necessary. So, an example, historical example, Al-Imam Abdul Wahab Sha'arani rahimallahu ta'ala from Egypt, a famous Sufi, Alim, scholar of renown, in his lifetime, certain mistakes were found in his works. Some of the scholars issued verdicts of takfir, declaring him, anathematizing him, declaring him out, out of the fold of Islam. Al Imam Abdul Wahab Sha'arani 
said in his lifetime that my book was tampered. And he pointed out which books were tampered and by whom. The scholars retracted that fatwa. So any work today that reaches us of Imam Abdul Wahab al-Sha'rani rahimahullah ta'ala, we know that that work has been tampered. Because he pointed this out in his lifetime. In fact, the Qadiani sect, when attempting to prove uh, the false prophethood, they attempt to prove prophethood for Mirza Ghulam Ahmad. When they attempt to do this, they sometimes cite Al-Imam Abdul Wahab al-Sha'rani rahimahullah ta'ala, ascription of false ascriptions to him. But we know from his own works that he mentions that his works were tampered in his lifetime. Another example is Al-Imam Muhammad Amin Umar bin Abidin rahimahullah ta'ala, in his hashiyah, he has a statement regarding writing out the Qur'an in, in, in impurity. This statement, some of the people who term themselves as being غير مقلدين, uh, non-followers of schools, they bring this statement out. How do we respond to that claim? How we respond to the claim is that this mistake of Ibn Abidin, if it was indeed a mistake, was not brought out firstly in his lifetime. So there is no judgment upon Ibn Abidin ta'ala because he's not, he was not alive at, at the time when the objection was made to answer. But ironically enough, the person who answered that on behalf of Imam Ibn Abidin was Imam Ahmad al-Dakhan ta'ala in his work Jaddul Muntar, which is a commentary on the Hashi of Ibn Abidin. He answers the objection made. So these are two examples that citing books of previous scholars is not something new. That citation is taken back to their lifetime. Was this scholar taken to task for this citation? Another example is Faisal al-Tafriqa of Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali rahimahullah ta'ala. Faisal al-Tafriqa, there is a passage which is objectionable. And Imam Muhammad bin Yusuf al-Sanusi rahimahullah ta'ala came 300 years after Imam al-Ghazali corrects the, uh, the statement of Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. But contemporaries of Imam al-Ghazali rahimahullah ta'ala who lived slightly after him were very harsh in their condemning of that passage. They condemned that passage with harsh terms. Did they look at the fact that this is hujjatul Islam Al-Imam Abu Hamd al-Ghazali, or did they look at the principle? The answer is what? That they looked at the principle, that no individual is beyond ijma'. So this may be a cultural shock for someone who has spent all his life in a Darul Uloom, in the confines of full walls of a Darul Uloom, has not gone out and studied with various ulama, and has not broadened his horizon with regard to understanding the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So one thing we look at is, was the fatwa given in their lifetime? Additional to that, was the fatwa issued after their lifetime? So you have, for instance, some people issuing a fatwa on Abu al-Abbas Ahmad bin Taymiyyah. Some of them declared him a disbeliever, like whom? Like the commentator to the usul of al-Bazdawi rahimallahu ta'ala, uh, he, what does he, Alauddin al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala, the author of Kashf al-Asrar, student of Imam Sa'aduddin of Taftazani. He lived at least around 
many decades after Abu Abbas Ahmad bin Taymiyyah, but he issued a, a verdict of disbelief upon Ibn Taymiyyah based upon the, the passages found in the books of Ibn Taymiyyah. But on the other hand, you have a contemporary of Ibn Taymiyyah, Al-Imam Subki rahimahullah ta'ala, who refuted Ibn Taymiyyah. He said the statements are disbelief, but I refuse to declare him a disbeliever because of precaution, ihtiyat. This is an example that two Sunni scholars have taken a divergent view on declaring the same person as a disbeliever. But the point being, did they agree upon his errors? The answer is no. What did they do? They condemned the errors. They referred back the error to what, what error was this? They, they refuted him on believing that hellfire shall perish, that hellfire shall come to an end. Al-Imam Subki rahimahullah ta'ala said this, this belief is disbelief. This point of creed is disbelief. But he refused to declare him a disbeliever based on precaution. And this brings me to uh, the point regarding the distinction of Luzum al-Kufr and Iltizam al-Kufr. But before I move on to that, a person needs to demarcate the distinction between a belief which is incorrect and the individual. These are two different things. Someone can point out a belief, we will say this belief is incorrect. Ascription of that belief to a person could be incorrect also. Someone could say the ascription of this belief is incorrect to X or to Y. This is something which is very important in understanding when looking at the sectarian divide between certain groups. That if people say that these statements are forged, these statements are forged, or these statements are incorrect, but we refuse to declare these people disbelievers because we are unsure whether they did tawbah, repentance, then the dispute will, will dis decrease. But what happens is the mistakes that these scholars make Certain individuals will make those mistakes tenets of faith. They will adopt those mistakes as tenets of faith. So if a scholar made a mistake, they will say this is the position that we hold and they will defend that position. This is what fuels sectarianism. Not grasping these principles and not applying those principles. So today if a person brings the book of any scholar, not only limited to Dioband uh, or to Bareli, any scholar, and that book contains a mistake which goes against ijma' of Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah, consensus. And that book contains something which goes against the principles of Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah, we reject the statement. We reject the statement. As for a judgment on the person, we would say, did his cont contemporaries pick up on this mistake? Was the book tampered? We will look at so many extraneous factors. If all of those factors are negated, then this is known as iltizam al-kufr, that we know this individual actually adopted this as a belief. It was well known. And he, like Mirza Qadiani, Mirza Qadiani, it is mutawatir that he declared himself being a prophet. He died upon this, as well as adopting that as a tenet of faith. Therefore, takfir of Mirza Ghulam Ahmed Qadiani is something absolutely necessary. But if someone brings a passage of a scholar 
and we know from this scholar's other works that he did not believe in this particular passage. We will say he believed in the correct belief. Maybe this passage was tampered, like what happened with Imam al-Ghazali ta'ala in Faisal al-Tafriqa, the passage that was mentioned, the scholars when they corrected that, they said this contradicts what Imam al-Ghazali states in al-Iqtisad fil-Itiqad, meaning it contradicts his other well-known work. Therefore, we believe this passage is tampered. And this is the position we take when examining any scholar, meaning there cannot be bias towards one sect. No. If someone presents a passage and they deny that this scholar held this position and they, they reject that particular belief, then that book can be locked away in a drawer and people can only reference that book for academic purposes, but the book should not be referenced in public. This is a consistent principle. Additional to this is making a distinction between iltizam and luzum. Iltizam al-kufr and luzum al-kufr. I will not go into the depth of that. Luzum al-kufr is when something ostensibly may look like disbelief, but has an interpretation which is valid within the confines of language. Within the confines of language. As well as within the confines of usul al-ifta, the the principles of issuing an, a, a verdict. While iltizam al-kufr is adopting a principle of disbelief and making that your tenet of faith. Like if someone believed in a new prophet, this person would be declared a disbeliever. So we move on to takfir. Takfir, declaring Muslims disbelievers. This was ascribed to myself that I may declare people as disbelievers. Now this is not something new for people who may be stuck on an issue to accuse me of declaring them as disbelievers. In the past, when I pointed out the mistakes of a particular scholar with regard to perennialism and multiple other issues, the only way he was able to have a PR, a public relations uh, attitude, and this is what many of them do, meaning they may be better than me in public relations. But what he said is that this person and this group from UK have anathematized me and declared me a disbeliever. This is incorrect. Pointing out a mistake, pointing out a historical timeline, and pointing out incorrect tenets of faith does not mean that we are declaring particular in individuals as disbelievers. This is something you have understood with your mind. But if someone points out an incorrect, flawed belief that this is incorrect and this person has said this, this does not mean that they are doing takfir of the individual. No, takfir is left to qualified scholars. The qualified scholars, they declare takfir of an individual. This is why when in discussion with the graduate Mufti of Binori, he is not actually a graduate of Binori town, he is a graduate of Jamitul Binori, I think. That Mufti asked me, do you declare me a disbeliever? I said, this is not my task. My task as a person who discusses theology, ilmul kalam, is to point out the heterodoxy of certain positions. Once the heterodoxy of those positions is pointed out, my obligation is fulfilled. But declaring an individual a disbeliever is the task of the ulama, of the wider body of ulama, if they believe it is essential 
upon them to declare an individual a disbeliever, they will do so. Moving on to uh, the past dispute between the Oband and Imam Ahmad Khan rahimullah ta'ala and the multiple ulama who were with him. Meaning, when, he, when they wrote As-Sawarimul Hindiya, he was not alone. There were over 200 Indian scholars who signed As-Sawarimul Hindiya in reply to Al-Muhannad. How do we move to removing this problem today and this dispute today? There are a few ways. One is that when the debate was ensuing between myself and the Mufti graduate of Al-Binuri, a prominent Diobandi from the UK. I will not mention his name as of yet, not to, ash to shame him, because he claims the current challenge that was issued, he was not, his name was mentioned in that challenge. He's one of the individuals mentioned. He says he is not a part of that challenge. He phoned me for assistance because he was abandoned by Sufatul Islam in Birmingham. Sufatul Islam, the institute, abandoned him and did not support him in refuting the Mufti graduate of Binuri. So he found me. Meaning, this individual that they now uh, declare a takfiri or a person who is divisive, why were they seeking my assistance in refuting their own monster that they had created? Frankenstein's monster. When he found, he asked for my assistance. I said to him, I will assist you on the condition that you announce that you are no longer labeling yourself as Diobandi the way I have announced that I do not label myself as a Barelwi. You announce that you do not label yourself as a Diobandi. He said, did your people have a problem with you announcing yourself words to this effect as a non-Barelwi? I said, no, because most of them do not call themselves Barelwi anyhow. They call themselves Sunni Muslims. If some of them do say Barelwi, they mean out of love to Imam Ahmad Khan, but generally they refer to themselves as Sunni Muslims. He was surprised. So I said, all you have to announce is, you are no longer the Obandi, you are only Hanafi Maturidi. The way I have said, I am Ashari. Now I have been saying I am Ashari from the earliest videos of mine. If you go back to the debate with Abdul Rahman the Mishqiya in the year 2009, Abdul Rahman the Mishqiya asks me, what creed do you hold? And I say, Ash'ari. I say, I am Ash'ari creed. Meaning, from day one, from when I learnt, by the way, I have over 15 teachers, over 15 teachers. Only two are from the Indian subcontinent. And one of them, his chain of narration does not go through Al-Imam Ahmad Rida Khan. It goes to Fadlul Haq Khairabadi, rahimallahu ta'ala. And the other teacher would discourage me from reading Fatawa Ridawiya. I'm sorry to say those who may be upset. He would say to me, do not read Fatawa Ridawiya. So, our backgrounds are much more broad than your background. Fifteen teachers, only two are from the Indian subcontinent. The rest are Arabs for the majority. So, for you to say that we are using a cloak of Ashari and from internally we are Barelwi, this is incorrect. 
we are wearing the same cloaks that we had on before the inception of Darul Uloom Dioband. The, the cloak that the Muslims had prior to that. And you should do the same. Come back to Hanafi Maturidi. And when you come back to Hanafi Maturidi, make Al-Aqidatu Tahawiyah your manifesto. What should you do with all the controversial books? I tell you what you should do. Get all the controversial books and place them in a cabinet. Don't burn them because I do not believe in book burning. Place them in a cabinet, lock them up, ulama can access them for academic purposes, but do not reference anyone after 1866. Most of the people sitting here, and most of the people, he said, people I associate with are Barelvis. This is what he said. Most of the people here, and people listening online, and people who will listen after, who he claims may be my followers, they are not my followers because they do not blindly follow me. No one blindly follows any one single scholar. They should follow ijma' consensus. Will not have a problem with this statement. Why? Because any one of the beliefs that we have are found in all the previous books. Any belief. Any belief that you may say you hold, I will bring that belief from the books prior to 1866. Prior to 1821. In fact, we can go further back. And this is what would make us the real Salafis. Meaning, the real followers of a Salafu Salihun. If you told me to only stick to the first 300 years, I will show you my beliefs from the first 300 years. And this is what it means to follow the four Sunni schools. The followers of the four Sunni schools are the real Salafis. If they did this, if the people who graduate from these Diobandi institutes and those who label themselves as Barelvis, if they did this, there will be no disunity. In fact, there will be more unity. But are they able to do this? The answer is those who are able to do this are those people who have beliefs from prior to 1866. Meaning, they existed prior to 1866. They existed prior to 1821. And the same advice I would give to those who call themselves Salafi today. How do Salafis follow a Salafu Salihun without causing disunity? The answer is, go back to the works of Al-Imam Yahya bin Sharaf and Nawawi rahimahullah ta'ala. There is no one more, if the term is correct, Salafi, than Al-Imam Yahya bin Sharaf al-Nawawi rahimahullah ta'ala. Go back to his works and take from his works. Why are you taking from scholars who came after, who disunited the unity, who disunited the ummah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu wasallam, who broke the unity of the, the ummah, the nation of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu wasallam, whom Al-Imam Nawawi rahimahullah ta'ala. This is my concluding remarks regarding this entire situation. If both those, some of them have stopped their students from their, their institutes from listening to my lectures. Why? Because this is the stuff that they will listen to. Meaning, open your minds that the ulama of Islam are not limited to Darul Ulum Dioband or not limited to Bareli. They are vast. Ahl-Sunnati wal-Jama'ah is a vast family. By that token, by him labeling me as a Barelwi, he should label me as a Nabahani. Because I love Al-Imam Yusuf al-Nabahani, rahimallahu ta'ala, from Palestine, who is a contemporary, from uh, Lebanon, who is a contemporary of all these scholars. 
Al Imam Yusuf al Nabahani, meaning I hold him in the same esteem as Al Imam Ahmed Khan, Rahmanullah Ta'ala. Likewise, Al Imam Badruddin al Hassani from Syria, who is the great grand sheikh of more than 10 of my teachers, he should call me a Badari. Likewise, he should call me a Qattani because the, we respect the likes of Al Imam Abdul Hayy al Qattani and Al Imam Muhammad bin Ja'far al Qattani, the way we venerate and respect. Al-Imam Ahmed Rida Khan Rahmanullah Ta'ala Why are you limiting Ahlul Sunnati Wal Jama'ah to one region of the world? Now we are living in the UK in the 21st century There is an osmosis of different regions of the world in this country Open up your horizons and realize that the Ahlul Sunnati Wal Jama'ah is a very broad family It is not limited to Darul Ulum Diyoband This is why when you say Ahlul Sunnah Diyoband You never hear people in Damascus saying Ahlul Sunnah Al-Muhajirin, Ahlul Sunnah Hayyul Maidan, Ahlul Sunnah uh, uh, Ruknuddin, these are areas in Damascus, Ahlul Sunnah Damishqi, Ahlul Sunnah Halabi, Ahlul Sunnah. I'm, I'm restraining myself from using stronger language. That move away from this narrow minded graduate of these Darul Lundiabans, which the Mufti of Birmingham. Your Mufti of Birmingham, not our Mufti. The Mufti, your Mufti of Birmingham, the graduate of Binori, he rebelled against this. But his rebellion went to another end. His rebellion, he became a modernist, reformist. If you continue like this, you will not survive in 21st century Britain. The only creed that can survive in 21st century Britain is adopting the principles of the Ashari creed. We do not adopt those, we have all been taught those principles from day one. In our curriculum, there was not a single book of Imam Ahmed Khan Ta'ala. You go and look at your syllabus, you will have multiple works of ulama of Dioband because you are limited to that methodology. In, in our syllabus, we were taught books from a scope of scholars, a variety of scholars. In fact, my better introduction to Imam Ahmed Khan Ta'ala was in Damascus, was at the hands of the scholars of Damascus, meaning a better introduction to him, like the speaker prior to me mentioned that many of his works are published in Damascus. This is where I read majority of his works. So this is the way that we unite the, um, the two factions, the Obandi and Barelvi. But who will come to unite? Only those people who are willing to follow this principle that we adopt the creed of everything which was prior to 1866. And when you look at the creed, you will find these contradictions in what you have been taught and what the scholars previously held. And this is what makes it difficult for you to do so. Either that, or there is a total blind conformity of your scholars. You, you believe Hazrat is unable to make, these are they refer to them, Hazrat is unable to make mistakes. You believe Hazrat is ma'asum, free from sin. You believe Hazrat uh, is free from what they accuse him of. Brother, open up your mind, please. And look at the, the Ahlul Sunnah Wal Jama'ah with a broader mind. So, with regard to the debate itself. Firstly, I was surprised that this individual mentioned a term, Alamatul Dunya. Do you know what Alamatul Dunya is? The most learned man on earth. This is a, the most learned man on earth, he believes, is a man who lives in Manchester. Alamatul dunya. There are many scholars 
in the UK, I do not refer to any one of them as Allamatul Dunya. There is no Allamatul Dunya in the UK. If you wanted to name a balanced scholar who we could, could call Allama today, go and mention a Sheikh Nuruddin Itr. Go and mention other scholars. A Sheikh Nuruddin Itr who uses Diobandi works. He recites your Diobandi scholars. You will notice that Diobandi uh, scholarship only rates and follows those scholars that rate their scholarship. If they have no mention of their scholars, they really tend to cite those scholars. But nevertheless, mention a Sheikh Nuruddin Itr or some other scholar. Allamatul Dunya, he mentioned. And he mentioned a second individual. That individual that he mentioned, Manzoor Ahmad Numani. He wrote a verdict in defense of Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. So this person said, go and ask your ancestors. First he said, he, they have been silent. But then he said, Manzoor Ahmad Numani and the Alamatul Dunya have been refuting you. So, so you have not been silent for the past decades. Nevertheless, this Manzoor Ahmad Numani, he wrote a fatwa defending Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. And in fact, in um, Fatawa Rashidiya, and these are the things they are saying, I am attacking the ulama. I'm, I'm not attacking, I'm making an um, objective point here. In Fatawa Rashidiya, Sheikh Rashid Gangohi mentions and praises Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. So make your stance clear. Are you for Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, meaning Darul Ulum, Diyaband as an entity? Are you with Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab or are you against Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab? Additional to that, their scholars say contradicting things in the works like Al-Muhannad. But this brings me now to us being objective because they may say you are not objective. There is a prominent Sunni scholar in the Indian subcontinent, I will leave this for them to cite, who is asked regarding Fadlul Haq Khairabadi and Ismail al-Dahlawi. He is asked, a Sunni scholar, someone we hold in esteem, are these two groups, which of these two groups is correct? He says, both of these groups are rewarded, meaning Fadlul Haq Khairabadi, the leader of the jihad against the British who, who was killed, martyred on the Andaman Islands in 1861. And Ismail al his group, he died in 1831 in Balakot. He says both of them are rewarded. If any Diobandi alim shows me this citation to say, look, your scholar has said this, this scholar you hold in esteem. What do you have to say now? I'll say it is a mistake. The scholar is mistaken. Yes? This is our position. Why? Because of the principles. Which of their scholars will say, Mawlana Rashid Ahmad Gangohi was mistaken? Any scholar who does so, I will take off this expensive thobe and give them this thobe. That's all I can afford. But the point being that if their scholars do come forward and say, Mawlana Sheikh Rashid Ahmad Gangohi was incorrect in saying this, or the Nu'man, uh, Nu'mani, Mandur Ahmad Nu'mani was incorrect in defending Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab, I will give them a reward for saying this. And this is the attitude we want. This is what we want you to adopt. That recognizing ijma' consensus and recognizing principles of Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah. Lastly and finally, with regard to the debate, the debate challenge was accepted straight away. 
they did not budge away from the subject why I accepted some people may oppose me on this because what the Shia did is they up, became obstinate on the subject when I wanted a different subject they refused to contact me after that and then they held a gathering in Slough saying that I have failed to attend the debate and many people believed in this propaganda I will not give them an opportunity to do such propaganda many lies were mentioned in that video for instance the lie that I contacted them to say that let's resolve this behind the scenes that is incorrect I did not contact them to say that if someone did contact them they said that without conferring with me their scholar was the one who contacted me to refute the Mufti of Binori town their scholar contacted me but I did not contact them to resolve this behind the scenes I offered them a discussion at that time before to say let's discuss these disputes in private but now that they have offered the debate the debate will occur Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala willing on the 13th of January in Bradford in Yorkshire I have agreed to travel to them additional to that conditions for the debate have been accepted to occur in December they haven't given me a date the conditions will be discussed in Birmingham those conditions that meeting for the conditions will be live streamed that meeting will be live streamed these are the this is the agreement that has occurred we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that firstly he enabled them to understand the subject objectively but there is one additional condition I will now request in public yes I will meet you and debate you face to face never in the past have I refused to debate anyone but I would demand from you to write down your positions in a written manner in English and Arabic I will write my response in English and Arabic and you can write a counter response and I will write a counter response to that this written debate should be done also by 13th of January that written debate in Arabic will be sent to the Sunni Arab ulama who we see as fair and fair people the likes of a Sheikh Muhammad Awama who has good links with Darul Ulum Dioband he has very good links with Diobandi ulama a Sheikh Muhammad Al Awama who we hold in high esteem the son of a Sheikh Abdul Fatah Abu Ghudda Sheikh, Sheikh Salman meaning these are not biased individuals a Sheikh Salman also has good links with the scholars of Dioband they do not have links with this, those whom you call Barelvis likewise a Sheikh, my teacher, a Sheikh Nuruddin Itr. Likewise, a Sheikh Abdul Fatah Bizam. Likewise, a Sheikh Husamuddin Al Farfur. Likewise, many other ulama of the Middle East, Sunni prominent ulama, and we will make them the judge of the debate. We will not make anyone in the UK judge. You must accept this condition also to show your sincerity. So this condition is an additional, I have accepted all your conditions. They wanted one particular subject, I accepted. 
They wanted me to travel to Yorkshire, I accepted. Why? Because I do not want you to run away the way the Shia Rawafid ran away. Then they made false propaganda afterwards. And with regard to the Shia, that challenge stands with them to this day. In fact, I may one day go out looking for them in Hyde Park, because many of them come to Hyde Park. One day, inshallah, I will find you. I mean, that's not finished also. People should not think I have finished with them. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to enable us to follow the correct way and the correct methodology of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah to move away from these labels, meaning all these different masajid, they place these different labels in Pakistan. Some of them, he said, why did I mention that they have ties with terrorist groups? Sipai Sahaba would go into the Shia uh, Imam Baras in the 90s and go and shoot dead worshippers in the Imam Baras. This is something I condemn, condemn openly. Have they condemned Sipai Sahaba for this action? They would kill worshippers, just go in and shoot them dead. This is what I was referring to. The Pakistani government should make the official stance of the Pakistani government that in order to be imams of a masjid, you must be Hanafi Maturidi. Hanafi Maturidi, like the, uh, and like the Moroccan government has Ash'ari Maliki, the Pakistani Awqaf. The Awqaf, uh, the Ministry of Religious Affairs, should make Hanafi Maturidi the official for all the Hanafis. The Shia can have their Imam Baras. They can have their freedom of worship, but those who ascribe to the Hanafi school, they should only label themselves as Hanafi Maturidi. I guarantee you, those you, you, whom you call Barelwi today, majority of them will be fine with this. Why? Because they find their roots earlier. And I hope to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, those who call themselves the Obandi, especially the public, they also come to this way also. That they follow the Hanafi Maturidi way. Aqulu qawli adha wa astaghfirullah li wa lakum wa tubu ilayhi.